Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Dr. O. Allen Noble. What does the O stand for? Uh, Orville. Actually? Orville. Yeah, O-R-V-A-L. Not Orville, Orval. Oh. Orval. Orval, like the Trappist beer. Thank you. Yeah. Not like the popcorn yeah, I that, heard about. Yes, that would be... My entire childhood. Yeah, quite a, quite a decision to have to make what, what to go by if, you, if people thought you were named after Orville Redenbacher's popcorn. I mean, it's still a hard decision because, you know, people don't understand. They don't understand Orville. It was my grandpa's name. And the story I heard was that he didn't know how to spell his name. So I don't know if that's true or if uh, we actually get the name from, you know, the uh, Golden Valley or Val, which is what it comes from uh, in, oh. in France. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I, I want to give a quick note to listeners that like who have listened to the previous one of these uh, worries about progressive Christianity episodes with Brad Jones, this will be a different kind of a conversation. So Brad, not an academic, not a theologian, really great dude, PCA pastor, just kind of in the trenches. Listeners will remember that what one of the things that was so interesting about Brad's story is he had spent a lot of time overseas. And so he had an interesting perspective as someone who should have been fairly steeped in Southern Presbyterianism, but was not as steeped in it. But he wasn't coming, like some of the stuff I was 
talking about sort of from a theological standpoint, we're, we're kind of new to him. I don't think that's going to be the case today with you, Alan. You are a doctor. Is your, is your doctorate in theology? No, it's in, it's in English. It's in English. So, okay. There you go. You're an English professor at a Christian university. That's true. But you do engage with, I would say, you, you definitely engage beyond literature questions, for instance. Like, you write a lot about the public sphere and sort of yeah. talking about religion in the public sphere um, as opposed to in our homes and in our churches, right? In a place where we're coming up against people of other faiths or no faith, right? Yes, that's fair. Yep. So I think that this is going to be, also, I, I think that probably like, our beliefs will diverge less objectively than Brad and I did, but we'll see. I'm, I'm excited to find out. All I All know right. is that you are one of my favorite Twitter follows and Twitter friends. Oh, man. Uh, I highly recommend you guys follow Alan on Twitter, and I will put a link to his Twitter bio in the uh, or his Twitter handle in the notes. But let's start here, Alan. What sort of Christian lens or denominational perspective or however you want to flesh that out, are you coming from like situate yourself in the larger Christian tradition? Yeah. So also PCA. So I I didn't know that. I don't, you did. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm not as much variety as you maybe had hoped, but (laughs) you're like, and the podcast is over. Yes. So um, I'm, (laughs) This has been a lovely conversation. Yeah, I'm PCA, uh, was raised in uh, charismatic churches, non-denominational churches in Southern California, went to Assemblies of God Church for quite a while growing up, and then uh, somebody introduced me to Reformed theology, and I was like, this is weird. God can't do that, and uh, then got into it some more and was like, okay, that makes sense. I was about 45 minutes away from master's college and and seminary, so there was a lot of influence of John MacArthur in the area that I was at. So I like to say, I don't like to say it, but it is true that the church I went to at that time as I was in working on my bachelor's was Reformed Baptist, but I don't think I ever heard grace preached once, which once I went to some Presbyterian churches, it seemed incredible that any church would be Reformed in any sense and not preach grace, which is like, that's the whole thing. That's it. It's right there. So uh, when I went to Baylor, I attended a PCA church and I've been um, Presbyterian ever, ever since. So that's my, that's my lens. Will you just describe for people who don't know what the Presbyterian church in America is compared to sort of other Presbyterians or other larger denominations. Can you give a little uh, Cliff's notes there? Sure. So one way of describing it is uh, the PCA is the more conservative of the two biggest Presbyterian denominations in the United States, the PCUSA uh, and the PCA. Uh, So the PCUSA has uh, a range of of churches. Some are what you would describe as more uh, uh, theologically conservative and some uh, much more progressive. Well, people in the PCA would say there's also a wide range, but I would say no, there's, there is not. there's not. There's <laughs> not. Sorry, guys. There's really not. Yeah. Um, we are the conservative. And then, and there are various other Presbyterian denominations that are, that are adjacent. And so we don't, uh, there's no female ordination, you know, strong stances on abortion and uh, gay rights and marriage and homosexuality and, you know, various things like that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like to give it a quick example. So the church that my wife and I attended for 10 years is also PCA. It's called Grace Seattle. And they recently sort of were trying to get going like a, a partnership with Revoice, uh, which oh, yeah. is the kind of celibate gay Christian. Um, it's It's more complex than that. Bridget Rivera, who I interviewed a while back, people will remember, um, is aff- affiliated with that group. And like it was like the the presbytery, the larger area, even here in Seattle, was like not into it. <laughs> uh, yeah. and we and our church has deacons that are female, which are they're not elders and they're not pastors. and and the church almost got kicked out of the denomination for that. So, the denomination is is conservative. It it and so yeah. they might say there's some. Everybody thinks that there's a variety in the people who are like them, but it's not that, not that various. Nope. There's there have been some. Uh, it seems like there's been some progress on racial issues, though. In the and then maybe the CRT conversation kicked that kicked that back, or it, it's kind of hard oh to gosh. tell. Yeah, it's but it's it's a it's a contentious time. To be a PCA person who has, I don't know, what you might call more liberal social views, like un- unrelated mm. to theology, right? Or not that yeah. anything is unrelated, but you know what I'm saying? Not explicitly right. theological. Yeah. Yeah. I saw you. I mean, you're, <laughs> your kind of Twitter persona is is the sort of like, you're. I've made a huge mistake. Job from Arrested <laughs> Development. Like that's uh-huh. kind of your vibe, you know? And, and uh-huh. it's like- and it's like that's kind of what it's like to be. I imagine to be you within the PCA these days. I mean, you know, so there are people who are, you know, it's 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 we're talking about marginal differences, but who are more progressive, and and people are who are a lot of people who are more conservative in the PCA than me. But look, being a part of the church. The universal church or denomination, it's always a painful experience. Right. Yeah. It just is going to be. And if we take Christ's word seriously that that we are to dwell in unity, then we need to be desiring greater and greater unity. And 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 so the debate really becomes, okay, well, at what point does that unity come at the cost of of orthodoxy? At what point are we actually harming people with unity rather than, you know, uniting them? And that's, you know, wise, intelligent, godly people have, you know, different stances on what that is. But so, so for me, yeah, there are times, I mean, I think everyone in the PCA right now is, um, is, is struggling. There are a lot of people I know who are very conservative and, you know, on race, on sexuality, on politics. There's just a lot of fear that a creeping progressivism is going to take over the denomination. And there's some historical reasons that there's some, some, I don't want to say trauma, but there's his historic, there's history there that 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 leads people to be suspicious and concerned. Yeah, like for instance, when that creeping progressivism got, you know, made it so that black and white people could get married, oh, yeah. or civil okay, rights well, legislature that. could get passed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, there oh, no. is really scary historical precedent, Alan. I'm, okay, I'm giving well, you not... shit. I'm giving you shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but you know, well, you know, so that's that's the other side of it is that that that's of course that's the progressive rejoinder, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, and yeah. so um, you know, whereas you know, some people like myself are are frustrated that we're even having this CRT de- 
debate or whatever, or uh, because it's getting in the way of, as you were describing earlier, uh, the PCA making some real progress on the issue of race, and now we're debating this culture war nonsense that people can't even define, uh, broadly speaking. I was going to say, is it a debate when no one even knows if they're talking about the same thing? Can it really be a debate? Yeah, no. So what I want to ask you before, I want to define terms around progressive Christianity and make sure that we know what we're talking about. But before that, I think it's useful to, to sort of understand like, cause, cause it, cause it's framed around issues, problems. We're going to discuss those issues. We're going to talk around that. It's, it's framed around negative stuff, but I I like to start, I want to start with like, well, what are you for? Like, give us a background. You mentioned reform theology. You mentioned the idea of grace. You can include Mm. those if you want, but like, what is it about Christianity that you, that is important to you? That is kind of like the animating thing for you. And then maybe that will help us understand some of our differences and, you know, some of the worries. Mm, that's that's a good question. Yes, yeah, so I would absolutely say grace, and I would expand that, elaborate by saying that I, I think living in the contemporary world is a very taxing and draining and depressing and uh, difficult thing. And one of the uh, things that animates my faith is the belief that that Christianity has some explanatory power. It can help explain some of the difficulties that we face in in our world, but it can also give us a way not to fix everything, but it can give us ways to endure. And this is intention um, because on the one hand, I don't think we should have this sort of savior complex where we think we're going to save the world, we're going to fix everything. But on the other hand, I think as Christians, we don't have the right to throw up our hands and say, well, justice doesn't matter. And that's one of the other thing that, things that animates me is that uh, my my faith gives me um, uh, belonging and space, it situates me in the world and it helps me understand why I feel often like I don't belong. I feel alienated and out of situations, but also the, the suffering that my students feel, my neighbors feel. Um, but it also gives me a way of understanding what my obligations are toward my neighbor so that I act in the world. I act to serve. I act to pursue justice. I act to pursue love knowing that whatever justice is going to be accomplished is not through my means, but through Christ and through grace. Um, Can you define grace? I think at the essence of being is grace. And by that, I mean a kind of gratuity in a good sense, a prodigality, that God's posture towards us his posture towards us is one of, of love uh, that is unearned, unconditional love. That's the phrase. I was, I was dying, you know. I've been teaching all day, so forgive me. Unconditional love, <laughs> yeah, and that affects everything from the our existence in the world. So I believe that our, our existence, our being in the world is a gift of, of grace. It's one of the ways that God... Um, blesses us is by giving us being uh, moment by moment. But then also, you know, there's there's grace in uh, grace for sins that are bought through Christ's sacrifice. So I think there's a specific meaning of grace in Christian theology, especially Reformed theology, but I think it echoes a larger sort of posture of grace that is, you know, defining of God's nature. 
Yeah. I am a little, little theological. Well, I guess the whole episode might be a theological detour or a series of them. But I am about as non-reformed theologically as you can get. But I really resonate with your definition of grace as, you know, being itself is a, is a gift, is gracious. This gratuity, prodigality, you know, unconditional love of God, I, I have felt it many times. It is the absolute anchor of the fact that I am a religious person is having felt that grace in often in moments of, of prayer and, and contemplative practice, but also the birth of my son, mm. uh, other moments of, of deep connectivity to other people. And yet I don't have that reformed sense. I, I don't like, for instance, even going back 10 years to when I was an undergraduate, you know, senior in college, freshman or senior in high school, freshman in college being like, I don't think that God ever needed blood, you know, like that seems mm -hmm. unlikely that in a universe of billions of yeah. galaxies where maybe some beings live underwater, that God would need blood to, to forgive sins. So I, I've never, I've always had a hard time with like the reality of the atonement as like mm -hmm. an ontological or metaphysical truth that like, yeah. oh, Jesus sacrificed this thing that was absolutely true and Jesus needed to. So that part of it has never really resonated with me, even though I was raised evangelical with, I was raised with all that theology, but the grace part has stuck around for me big time. It's just, I, it's more just like, the un, I would lean more into unconditional love than the word grace because the word grace does have those sort of atonement connotations. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering just like, how does that hit you in terms of, are we basically agreeing or is it for you that like that, how central is the sort of, the part that does link up with Reformed theology? Do you feel like your non-Reformed peers have roughly the same understanding of God's unconditional love or are they missing a piece basically? Oh, that's see. So, yeah. So I want. I'm not going to be offended, that, by the way, if you think I'm yeah. missing a piece. <laughs> no. So I think that it's actually two different questions, and I would answer them differently. So, okay. because I think experientially, it is often the case that people who, let's say, are theologically Arminian, or you know, very often Reformed people will be like, well, Catholics don't, you know, believe in in grace, God's grace. You know, they believe in believe in works. And well, if you talk to most Catholics. That's experientially, that's not the reality. Now, no. now, now, somebody can make an argument looking at texts and looking at papal decrees or whatever that it is a logical conclusion from this theology that it is actually workspace, whatever. That, that might be a thing. But the experiential is a different thing. And so I think it's possible when you ask, okay, are, are my peers who are not Reformed experiencing and understanding grace in the same way? I don't know how to answer that because uh, I think it would really, it would, it would really depend. I, and, you know, one of the things I would say is that I, that people in uh, my Reformed camp or whatever tribe also would not understand grace properly. That uh, sometimes I worry that we think about theology, well, kind of like how I was taught about worldview, which is that you've got this ideology and it just filters everything. And so you can actually work backwards and, and sort of figure out what the worldview is. And some, okay, so yeah, theology does shape us, but sometimes it 
doesn't. Like sometimes it should. Remember that Reformed Baptist church I was in where I never heard grace. Like sometimes theology should shape us and it doesn't. Sometimes people sit under a pastor who's teaching grace and the gospel every Sunday and they still believe that they fundamentally are earning their own salvation by by being as pure and holy as they possibly can. So that's that part of it. So I'm not even going to, I don't know, but, but it's still possible that one could uh, actually experience grace and have a, an experiential sense of grace that I think is true while uh, lacking something theologically, while not having the, the theological justification for it. So to answer your sort of first question, I would say that atonement, yeah, is is important to that concept of grace because because of the idea of of merit, because the idea that uh, our our being in the world is not something that we can sustain on our own, and um, one of the reasons uh, for that is uh, because of the fall, because of our sin nature, and so what grace does in the atonement is it it covers those sins. And I've been thinking a lot about the gaze. I think everyone wants to have God look on them in affirmation. G-A-Z-E, not the gaze, (laughs) G-A-Y-S. That's a good... Switching from written to audio, you sometimes got to clarify. I've been thinking a lot about the gaze. (laughs) I was like, there's no way he means... There's no way he means the LGBTQ community. Oh, man. No, he must mean G-A-Z. I would not I would not say the gays. I just did, but I said the <laughs> No, you wouldn't. I know the, you wouldn't. The vision. The vision. The vision. The, uh, yes. Oh my gosh. This is how I get canceled. This is it. Somebody <laughs> takes that clip and it goes viral and I get canceled. Whatever. It was worth it. It was totally worth it. Uh yes. <laughs> thank you for correcting me. The the vision. We want God to look on us. Mm. And I think, you know, we see an echo of this in parents or loved ones when when you're, when a spouse or a loved one or a parent looks you in the eye. Yeah. They, they Of all the things they could look at in the entire universe, they decide to look at you and they affirm you. It is an affirmation of your being. And that is so fulfilling. Or, or, or at least uh, when a, another human does it, it's like a little glimpse of what God's affirmation of your being can be. Right. So I think we all have this innate desire for that. And now I'm stalling to try to remember what my train of thought was before I uh, said that. Uh, well, you foolish... mentioned not we, that, that we can't sustain our own being on our own. We, we can't. Got it. Yes. Yes. Thank Which you. I was going to come good. back to What a anyway. great host. <laughs> well, I'm ready. Such notes. a great host. Good. Okay. That's why I should be doing that while I'm talking. Um, so that's where I think uh, uh, Christ's work. So when God looks upon me and I know my sinfulness, I know the corruption of my heart. I know that uh, even when I try to do good, there's this egotism deep in the, in the heart of it. Oh yeah. Uh, and it's, tr- and it's, it, it drives me crazy. Like I, I, I'll try to do, you know, uh, somebody will come to me and I'll, and I'll talk to them and I'll talk about Jesus and I'll, I'll help them or something. And, 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 and I know that 
God has used me in this small way to help somebody through a difficult time, just one day of their life. And that's meaningful. And then I immediately I'm thinking about myself as this person who did this great thing. I can't out- uproot it. Yeah. My egotism is just, it's just so deeply embedded. Yeah. But when Christ, when God looks on me, he sees Christ's righteousness. And so it's that Im- I- I- imputed righteousness that for me, which we get from the atonement, that means that I can live in grace because I know when God looks at me, I mean, I still have that egotism right now. I'm being sanctified, but for now, I, I still have that egotism, but yeah. he sees the works of his son. And so he looks on me with favor. So okay, there. That's great. I don't want to make this a conversation about reformed theology. So I will just, I'm going to say one thing, you can respond or not, and then we can move on to progressive Christianity. All right. I, I'll just say without getting into a, a specific argument, when God looks at me, God sees me as an unconditionally loved creature. I agree. And when Paul writes, I do the thing I do not want to do, I don't do the thing I want to do, I agree. I think Paul is getting at really like, I think that sentence of Paul's is probably one of the most important sentences in the history of Western culture. In fact, I think that Mm. he gets at a truth in, uh, it's part of his larger thing, but he, he understood human nature better than most of the ancients. Hmm. So I'm like with you on all of that stuff. I think that we do crave that affirmation. You know, I, I'm, I would come from a attachment theory, lens thinking about our early childhood development and you know that we need that we crave it we're built for it i just don't think that there is any kind of actual separation because of sin that is actually solved because of jesus death and resurrection like my way of thinking mm. about the atonement is allegorical not ontological basically that like and i've, I've ever since i could find language for that I've thought, I think, you know, the atonement shows us something true about God rather than accomplishes something in the universe. So that's just, that's Mm. where I'm coming from. But I don't lose, as far as I can tell, I don't lose the parts of, we're disagreeing about mechanism, essentially. But the outcome is, we believe, is the same, which is that, yeah, I do struggle to live my values, uh, which for me are... Christian values, right? So I I struggle yeah. to live out the Sermon on the Mount. I struggle to live like Jesus. I would say in a meaningful sense, I can't do it on my own. Meaning through my own willpower, I can't get myself to that the kind of life that I want. I am stuck yeah. in the same situation that St. Paul was stuck in, and he is a mm-hmm. saint. So yep. yeah, but I just don't, I don't even feel any need for, like I don't feel an intellectual or spiritual need for that like, the accomplishment of the atonement, though I take great value and solace in the illustration of the atonement, if that makes sense, that Mm -hmm. it reveals something about God, just like the incarnation reveals something about God, just like the Genesis retelling of the Gilgamesh flood story reveals something Mm -hmm. true about God that was false in the Gilgamesh story. Like Mm -hmm. all that's all really valuable. I just don't, I don't even like, I, I just don't even know why we need <laughs> it. It's getting, it, I'm getting further yeah. and further away from the time in my life where I really felt like I needed something like the atonement thing. I just, I can get there without that mechanistic language. You, you can respond to that and then we'll, we'll move on. 
Yeah. So I guess yeah, so the I guess that what it hinges on is that ontology, mm-hmm. right? So does ontologically ontology listeners is like what exists? What ontology is like a thing I might be butchering this. Butcher it. Uh, Kill it. Metaphysics Does this require blood? Me- <laughs> metaphysics <Sorry>. is like <laughs> all the things that exist. Ontological and ontology is like actual effect and stuff in the world. So you could say, do you believe in angels? Well, I don't believe in them ontologically. I don't think that there are beings that are angels. But I think that talking that like angels represent this true thing about sort of the nature of the universe and God's whatever, you know. But ontologically, right. do you think they exist? Yes or no? Ontology. That was a very, very bad right. definition of ontology. Yeah, so being, but you got to that point. Being is the being. key, right? When yeah. you think ontology, you want to think being, the nature of being, thingness, existence. Yeah. Uh, existentialism is all about ontology, being in the world. I mean, for me, that's that's the key, right? Is Is it an allegory? Or is it an allegory and an ontological reality that something in existence, something in being, something in me literally changes because of something that really happened in time and space in Palestine, right? Yeah. And I'm not going to lose the allegorical because sure. the Bible is always – it always has that allegorical level yeah. of of interpretation and meaning. Um, but it's also going to have an ontological and that chain, that means that something about my nature itself is changed and is changing towards Christ-likeness. So for me, that's that's pivotal that there's a, a, a reality here that is beyond – my comprehension that is beyond my ability to to ferret out you know what are the tricks about uh, 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 allegories is that you have to understand the allegory right like so in order for it to have its effect upon you whereas if this is an ontological change this is what christ is doing to me and and the allegory matters and like i need to understand what this means at an allegorical level but the benefits are not dependent upon my ability to interpret and apply the allegory interesting I know you don't want to get into debate about that's that, but great. anyway, well, that's, this I may just end up being ontology. This may end up being kind of the the progressive thing. I mean, we're going to define terms, and we'll find out. I like what you said there. The benefits do not depend on my understanding them and understanding the analogy. Right? I yeah. think that's really interesting. I feel like I'd want a lot more time to think about it. But my initial thought, and maybe we'll come back to this. From like, as I study psychology and train to be a psychologist, and even before then, I find myself thinking more and more and more experientially, phenomenologically, Mm -hmm. like what is the actual experience of being born into the world in a human body and a human family and whatever. Yeah. And I think that like, there is a sense in which of course we have an unconscious, like for all the ways that we don't think Freud was right in a bunch of the particulars, (laughs) like basically everybody in the world agrees now that we have an unconscious and there, and like maybe Jung is right that there's a collective unconscious as well that we participate in, in our tribes or in our societies and our nations, whatever. So there isn't an, there's certainly like an unconscious aspect of our experience. And in terms of a mechanism, how can I be impacted by things in a way that I'm not consciously aware of? We have a mechanism for that. I think that's true. Yeah. So I'm with you there, but I do think that like, most of the stuff that really impacts us and really changes our lives, and in this sense, really ends up sanctifying us, to use theological language, is stuff Mm. that we have to become aware of. 
Like that's actually a big, that's actually a big, big part of it. And I think that I am a little skeptical that like, well, even though you can't see it, Christ is sanctifying me because I became a Christian. It's like, well, I'm kind of like wanting to play the James card here of like, if I can't <laughs> see it, is it yeah. really there? And, and isn't that maybe just a convenient thing to believe because human beings are tribal and don't want to feel on the outs, you know, like, so, yeah. so that would be where I would, I'd like to think about it more. It's almost like a, a dissertation topic, but you know, I mean, how does, how does that hit you? Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a great, and you know, James is a great place to look. So, so it has to have, be a lived reality. I just finished teaching uh, Dante at the university I teach at. And so I'm thinking right now a lot about, you know, Dante's vision, which I think is, is largely correct about, you know, the process of, of God working in our lives. And, um, you know, I you know I think Dante would say to that person who who has that true faith, and yet they seem to be very content not to uh, uh, to work on sanctification intentionally. Like you were yeah. saying, like you have to be intentional. You got to be thinking about this. Well, he would say, first of all, that's sloth. That's this, and that is mm. actually the sloth, the sin that gets him lost in the woods at the beginning. The whole Divine Comedy. I'm sorry to get into literature, but it hinges Great. upon the the poet not caring enough about God. He gets lost in the woods because he's indifferent. He just doesn't care. And for so for Dante, that's like one of the most dangerous sins is that you know you love God, but there's no zeal in it. And the result of that is that if God is truly the one who works in us, that you are going to be made to experience zeal, but that might come through suffering. Like right. you, you might, you know, like it's because, and that to me, speaking of experience, like that's a reality. Like the people I know who are, I mean, life hits you hard and yeah. it's pretty hard to be slothful to experience what the medievals call it, acedia, uh, you know, this, this idleness. Yeah. And you, you do have to start intentionally acting upon it. But what I'm saying is ontologically that justification has already happened. And so what that means is that when I come before God, and I see my idleness. I'm not coming for God, before God as a being who is marked and known by my idleness, my lack of zeal or my right. sin or whatever the temptations. I am, I am seen by God through the righteousness of his son. And that drives this zeal to act or should. I guess that I, all it is is like I just think God sees every creature that way. And I think that what happened with Jesus of Nazareth is the best image we have, the best story we have, the clearest illustration we have of the fact that that is how God sees everybody. So it's like, we're really, it's funny. It's not that big of a disagreement. It's like, here's a good way of saying it. What does it take for God to see you and me not defined by our sloth, our greed, our egos, but to see us by the way, whatever this means for God to see us as is like really problematic because God doesn't have eyes. God doesn't, you know, maybe isn't bound by time the way we are. I mean, I'm a, I'm an open and relational theist, so I think God is thoroughly in time. But God also has the ability to create a universe which instanti instantiates space-time. So, it, you know, 
some of this language is, again, it's a metaphor that we can't even really be confident we know what we're saying. What we are saying mm -hmm. is that I am accepted by God. That's ultimately what we're, and God does not primarily see me. Again, what would it mean for God to primarily see, quote unquote, anything? I don't even know. But God's posture toward me is not determined by my faults, but is rather mm -hmm. determined by my belovedness as God's creature. And all I'm saying is that's just true of all God's creatures from the beginning, from T1 at the Big Bang. Whenever they were going to be creatures, they were going to be accepted and loved by God and not defined by their faults. Once there were creatures who had developed enough cognitive capacity to sin. And then, and Jesus shows us that that's true by incarnating into the Jewish tradition. And so that's how we know it. That's one of the ways we know it, that God is that way. That's really the difference. That is kind of the difference between progressive and traditional Christianity. Mm, it's one mm -hmm. of them. So maybe this is mm -hmm. a good time to start getting into some definitions a little bit. And let's define. Okay. So I'll go first because I, I was asked this recently and I have a kind of a ready-made definition. And I don't know that this is going to, my definition is not going to port very well on what we have been talking about. And if yours ends up, we can go with this conversation. I want to go on your definition to have okay. the conversation since it's your worries. But my definition is what makes progressive Christianity different than traditional Christianity is primarily the fact that progressive Christianity looks to the future for a more full understanding of, of the truths of Christianity, whatever those truths are, that basically we are not there yet. And we should not think that people in the past understood it better than people in the future will understand it. That yeah. as we move towards Christ, as we move towards all things being in God uh, and the hope of the next life, the eschaton, whatever, that like it'll just be clearer later. It's not going to be clearer further back. And yeah. that, I think, is the best way to anchor the difference. That anchors the way we look at scripture. It anchors the way we look at, you know, changing social norms and theological norms and all of that. So that, that's how I would define the biggest salient difference. How does that sound to you? What if we just said heretics? What if we just, <laughs> Sorry. Progressives no, actually, are I heretics that, that ought to be burned boom. at the stake. Yeah, there we go. Should we, can we just accept that definition and move on? <laughs> uh, no, actually, I think that's, I, I think, yeah, I like that. I mean, uh, I don't like that definition, but I think that that sounds about right to me. I mean, I, I do think that progressive Christianity hinges on the idea of, of progress. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, however you define it, it has to have that component of looking towards the future, which all all forms of Christianity that are any in any way meaningfully Christian look for for the future. Right. So that's not unique. But yeah. what is unique? What you're talking about is uh, the revelation. Right. So there's this progressive revelation, like we are understanding our place in history and in uh, space, space and time yep. more and more clearly as God continues to reveal things. And so we should not be surprised, but actually should expect to be revising interpretations of the Bible as history unfolds. That yes. that sounds like progressive Christianity to me. Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting is like, I'm aware that there is a personality element to this that, hmm. uh, and I don't, I don't know the research on this super well, but my understanding is that essentially people who are naturally conservative 
have a natural aversion to change, a natural desire to look back. If you want to appeal to Republican voters on an issue, you will appeal to some time in the past. You will say, if you want to appeal on racial, racial issues, you might go, you know, there was a time when the American economy wasn't built on slavery and racial right. discrepancy. When, and the founding fathers, they had a vision for the equality of man, mankind, right? That's how you appeal yeah. to conservative people. And liberal people, personality-wise, I'm talking, right? Yeah. They, we tend to look to the future. We tend to go, hey, imagine a future version. This is the I have a dream speech where yeah. our kids, won't, this won't even be an issue for them, right? So that is a natural progressive personality. And I recognize that I have a liberal personality. And so I have to kind of check that and make sure that I'm not, you know, baptizing my own personality with theology. Yeah. But I do, by the way, think that almost every person in the world baptizes their personality with whatever language mm -hmm. they happen to have at hand that is strongest. And if you're religion, yeah. religious, then religious language is the strongest language you have. So we all do that. I'm just trying to do it yeah. less. But I also think if you have to, <laughs> if I have to choose, yeah, I got to go. I, I just think that's more likely than traditional yeah. Christianity, which I don't know, you could define that or you can define progressive the way you think about it. We can go anywhere from here. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm, now I'm thinking about personality and I'm trying to evaluate, you know, what, how my personality fits. So, so if I'm distracted, it's, it's your fault is basically what I'm saying. I'm trying to think like, what, 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 what am I inclined to? You uh, are, you are very well known for your aesthetic clothing choices. You, you wear yeah. a long beard and like a Newsies yeah. style cap. You often wear bow ties. You dress quite formally. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. sort of, you're, you're famous or infamous for this. Uh, I spotted you. Am I am I infamous? I, Is that I don't know. I spotted you at the uh, Festival of Faith and Writing because yeah. partly of your clothing, and yeah. I don't know. You could take that as a a weak clue to a more uh -huh. conservative. Uh, I don't know predilection. Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. Could just be. You just have good style. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, some would would call it dandyism and say it's a sign of liberalism. I mean, for for real. I mean, like, no, you're I, totally I, right. If you had lived in the time of the Federalist Papers, you would be accused of liberal dandyism based on your dress. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I don't know. You know, here's what I know is that for for me, uh, I feel like the world is very chaotic and that I have too much to do and I have no control, very little control. And I've got 15 minutes to get dressed in the morning. And what I get to do is I get to try to coordinate uh, a tie and a shirt and pants and socks and shoes and a hat and a coat and a pocket square. And uh, that feels nice. It feels like I'm, I'm, I'm creating a little bit of beauty in the world yeah. because like I might not be able to bathe this week because I have so much grading to do, but I can, <laughs> I will coordinate my socks and my tie. And that's nice. It just feels nice. That's it. That's it. That's what I've got. So cr traditional Christianity. Yeah, man. Well, what do you think? So you like, you're yeah. accepting my definition of progressive, basically. I think that's, okay. uh, yeah, I think, yeah, yes. Great. Yes. I think that that's a fair assessment. And I don't know what you would say for traditional because it's so... I, I would say it's probably harder to define because in, in point of fact, most global Christians are traditional Christians, but they are traditional Christians within five to 10 broad 
denominational categories, yeah. each of which have pretty salient differences with each other. I guess we could, other people have probably already done this in a way we can better than we could do it in real time. But what do those <laughs> things have in common? They, they do tend to look backward to the founding of the church, the canonization of the text. They do it in different ways. You know, the Orthodox and Catholic churches will fight over whether they are the successor to Peter. The Protestants won't. But yep. the Protestants were trying to kind of go back to the early church and the text. Of course, they were ignoring the fact that only in their time could people start to begin to read, which is interesting. But, you know, I'm a Protestant, so yeah. I can't really slam yeah, them too hard. Go. Yeah, there's there's the Coptic and Ethiopian Orthodox Church. There's like the Holiness movements, Pentecostalism. Uh, there is a, a real variety here, but there's a there's definitely in general like the text is either inerrant or something closer to that than what progressives would determine it to be. Uh, okay, that's helpful. Yeah, that's helpful. I'm glad because you've you've thought about this, and no, I think you're right. Yeah. So, so part of the difference then is that for traditionalists, uh, we expect that the truths that we find in interpreting the word and tradition are going to remain static. That we would be surprised to see. Uh, to discover that um, you know some truth that we accepted is no longer actually a truth. Yeah. That would be uh, uh, troubling. Yes. Whereas um, for progressives, that would be actually expected. Um, it might would be still be troubling, but we would. But old, like in the moment, it might be troubling. Like I'm having yeah. a conversation. It will come out later than this with Kyle Roberts about the virgin birth, and he wrote that book. Uh, a complicated pregnancy. He started his research planning to affirm it. He's a progressive, but he planned to affirm it. He's like, hey, if I affirm the resurrection, why not affirm the virgin birth? And he ended yeah. up not affirming it after his research. Huh. And I think that there will be people listening who are going to be a little bit like, oh, Dan, Dan and Kyle, don't take my virgin birth from me. <laughs> and I totally get that. I get yeah. that. However, can we just keep the virgin birth? Can we just keep it? Can we have anything nice? Is that too much? Too That's much to right. ask? But I I really get that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that feeling of like, oh, you know. But what I would say is that within progressive Christianity, there is sort of a framework to catch you as you feel that. You go, well, okay, maybe this is one of those things that we've had to give up in the past. And as we understand more about science and what made what made Jesus fully fully man and fully God. Like, if we do virgin birth, are we not doing fully man? Are we missing something? Okay, well, I can lean into this as it is destabilizing. So, I guess the point would just be that it, it might still be destabilizing in the moment for a traditional mm -hmm. or a progressive Christian, but the traditional Christian would then, I, I would think, would be incentivized to f to refute it or to consider counter arguments that would affirm it. And the progressive Christian would be less interested in that and would more likely default to like, okay, well I got to, and maybe they don't want to, but I got to figure out how to work this in now, you know? And that's yeah. actually kind of, they're both actually work. You're, you're both mm -hmm. doing work to sort of take yes. this new bit and, and fit it in or, or not fit it in. Right. It's, right. it's interesting. 
Yeah, and so the traditionalist, you know, when we try to make sense of some some problem or some question, you know, it is going to be a, a much bigger deal. And so the framework we have for dealing with it would be something like a council or a synod, right? Like it's it's got to be some huge thing yeah. where we're like, okay, we've got to know how do we make sense of of this, you know, problem or this question. Yeah. As most of you know, you can support this show financially by becoming a patron through the Patreon campaign. Uh, It starts at $5 a month, and there is a sliding scale for those who cannot afford that at this stage of life. Links are in the show notes, patreon.com slash dancoke. Patrons get access to at least two exclusive episodes per month in addition to these main episodes. Recently, I have spoken with the Christian uh, meme lord and humorist comedian Josh Carlos, as well as a continuing series with Tony Jones, where he and I respond to episodes of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast put out by Christianity Today. So become a patron and you can listen to all of those on the patron feed. Also, you have access to the You Have Permission group on Facebook, which is for patrons only. So if you're interested, patreon.com slash Dan Koch, where you can find that link in the show notes. All right, back to my conversation with Alan. So I guess one way of asking you what your problems are, I wrote down some of the things that you are all about, uh, for lack of oh a better gosh. term, as you were this saying. This is scary. Them, no, no. And uh, I thought. Oh, right now. I, that you were you didn't saying. You go through my no. Twitter feed. Okay. All right. I'm ready. I then. did a All Twitter right, word cloud. No. <laughs> um, no, it's just the stuff you were saying. And so I, I'm wondering if okay, maybe yeah. some of these things might play into the worries. Like I could make sense of them. So like, for instance, let, let's just start with this, this core thing of grace, uh, at least the part of the, of grace that we agree. Well, any part of it, including the atonement stuff. So this gratuity prodigality of love on God's behalf, this unconditional, unearned love from God, the gift of pure being, is that threatened in 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 the way that you conceive of it by a more progressive Christianity, or is that still basically intact and that's not a worry? I mean, I guess it would, you know, progress, as you know, there's there's such a variety. Sure. I mean, so it, it, it can, I mean... Well, just take the um, way I defined it then. I Not that I represent progressive Christianity, but... I'm sure my perspective there is not like wholly outside bounds, right? Of like, no, that's just yeah. God already feels that way about everybody, every creature. We don't need a sacrifice. We don't need the divine to suffer in order for God to see us that way. We don't need that mechanism. God just already sees us that way. God loves God's creation. Yeah. So I would say that one possible thing that we lose there, and to point to literature again, would be, you know, Dostoevsky is, is the, the sense of, of, of evil in the world and the power of evil in the world and the, the toxicity of evil, the way it spreads so insidiously and infects and multiplies not just harming the individual, but always spreading to others, right? I mean, sin is pollution and it creates pollution, literally. That, that, yeah. that you know, it infects. And be, because of that, you know, when we were talking about grace, 
without that sense of atonement, without a sense that there is divine judgment, that there is divine wrath, to me, I can't experience experientially, I need something, this makes it sound like I'm just being driven by psychological needs, but no, um, to make sense of the world, to make sense of the evil that I have witnessed in the world, I need a God who is also capable of taking sin and evil seriously. Yeah. And that means doing something uh, with it, uh, not just wiping it away, but doing something with it. So that's interesting. There, I have a lot of thoughts on this, and I think I could put them into two categories. The first is like the here and now, while we are living, what we are experiencing now. And then the second is like future expectations. Yeah. So in terms of the here and now, I often think about Christus Victor, you know, the, mm-hmm. the early kind of first maybe atonement theory, still the primary theory in the Orthodox Church and depending on who you ask, the Catholic Church. The idea that like what Jesus did by dying and resurrecting is Jesus like defeats sin and death, defeats Satan. But I live in the world today where like obviously sin is not defeated, right? So I wonder if that really matters in the here and now. It's like, it's sort of like Zoroastrianism. You know, they go, well, there must be an equally powerful good and bad God duking it out. Because what we experience now is a mix of the two. We have all this beauty and love. I just, all I have to do is smell my son's hair and I am transported to joy. And then we have like children being killed and genocide. And like, we've got it all, right? We, we've got it all. And to some degree, like, I mean, I guess I, what I'm saying is the Christian story is a perfectly good explanation for that in terms of like what we're living with now that we are Mm -hmm. in the already not yet of the kingdom. We have a glimpse from Jesus, but we haven't arrived yet. Right. That's great. But in the here and now, I don't, I can't see how traditional or progressive makes any difference to the way that like in now, and then we can switch to future. So what do you think about that in, in terms of that here and now question? Doesn't it change the, the meaning of events? Like how, so? how you, um, so, so meaning, when we make meaning of events, when we discover meaning, reveal meaning, or make meaning, when we interpret events that have occurred, mm-hmm. we are reaching into the past, we're understanding the present, but we're also projecting into the future. We're, we're putting that event into a timeline. Yes. And so it seems to me that that part of it is for the here and now in the sense of of understanding what this evil means, how it fits in the cosmos, and what it means between our relationship with God, between my personal relationship with God, but but and also my neighbor's relationship with God. Uh, and also, yeah, does, would would you not say that it it gives you a, a kind of meaning, a way of understanding? The present? Yes, that's true. So maybe it's wrong to separate out the present and the future. I guess just conceptually we we can separate them out, but now we should talk about both to get a full we actually can't do the present meaning without future anticipation, essentially, is what you're saying. Yeah. And I agree. Yeah, I guess so. So yeah. then switching to the future frame is like, what will God do with evil? Because even if Jesus defeated sin and death, it's sort of like it's an already not yet kind of a defeat. Like 
That's actually why I don't find Crisis Victor all that personally compelling. I'm just like, mm-hmm. he did what? <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. sure seems like kind of the same world as the Old Testament times. Like, it's not, you know, it's not like manifestly different in the realm of human activity after Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. Nor is it manifestly different like Christian communities from non-Christian communities, if you wanted to say it that way. I don't think that there is very good evidence. Like, religion including Christianity, is good for people by and large. And I say that all the time on the podcast, but it's not like three standard deviations above the mean good. It's not like, oh, obviously there is this conquering force of good started by Jesus and Peter that is like so clearly spreading the kingdom to the world. It's like much harder to tell. And, you know, we don't have to get into colonialism and, spreading of the gospel, but I, you and I are on the same page, I know, on that stuff. Like, that, yeah. uh, those kind of triumphant stories many of us heard growing up are turned out to be quite quite false and, and masking a lot of real real evil, right? So the the dividing line of evil goes through the heart of every man, right? So, Solzhenitsyn, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Anyway, so to the future, it's like you're saying, well, there's judgment and wrath. Like, God needs to be doing something with this evil and then that is a is a necessary part of you understanding sort of evil's role and its place in the current moment in sort of universal time and history and the story right and i guess what i'm wondering is is there a difference in your mind between the way that a progressive god deals with evil has wrath and judgment and a traditional god is that sort of where the the divide is? That's my as, as, assumption. I mean, maybe there is a but a, a way of understanding progressive wrath. But also, as as you were talking about this, is about that experience of the present. It also occurred to me that, and this goes back to that idea of ontology. It seems to me that one of the most significant things is that when I experience something real, you described earlier the experience of God's affirmation of your being that you felt the birth of your son, and sometimes in church or prayer or contemplation. Yeah, I don't know if you said church, but contemplation. Okay, uh, church. So uh, it's those kind of moments. It matters to me that those are not merely things that are going on in my mind, but they are a reflection of a reality, that they actually have some ontological weightiness to them that is irreducible to uh, materialist explanation, right? So I want to say that for both beauty goodness, truth, but I also want to say that for evil, that even in the moment, uh, even if, you know, and yes, we do need to talk about the, the future, but even in the moment when there is evil, it matters to me that this evil is ontological. Like there, there. This is a thing that is evil. That this, this action is evil. This, this harm, this suffering is actually evil. Not merely an experience of discomfort or distaste or social objections or or whatever it might be. Something going on merely in my mind, but it has a value that is uh, objective. Uh, from me that Mm -hmm. I only get in shadowy ways, but is grounded in the world because that's my experience. The same experience of, of, uh, you know, when a child, your child is born and you feel like 
this, what I am experiencing does not feel like it is merely just a, a chemical reaction, although it involves that. But also I feel that way with righteous indignation. When I see a great injustice done, the, the, the feeling I have, the reality of evil in the world that I experience does not feel like a, an evil that is merely an oppression, but is a reflection of reality grounded in God's judgment, which is absolute. Okay, couple. Yeah, it's great. Couple of really good things in there. Let's hold off on evil for a second and talk about this this feeling of this experience of being loved and uh, and accepted by God. For you, that that needs to reflect an ontological reality. It can't merely be uh, reducible to some materialistic explanation of like what's going on in my brain or something like that. So there's, this is a fantastic point and entry into some questions. I would love to not be a materialist about human persons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that it doesn't make sense to say that God is only material because you still need the part of God that can create a universe, which is a material universe. But I do think there's sort of no good reason to think that people, that human persons while living on earth in this, whatever, in this uh, dimensionality are anything but physical beings. That doesn't mean that there's not some correlate in some spiritual realm, maybe that we don't have access to. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's not some correlate in what we might call the mind of God, right? But like, mm-hmm. I am a physical being. If you put an electrode yes. in a certain part of my brain, I will feel yes. or taste or hear something. For sure. And we just kind of know that. And I yeah. don't, so I, you know, not, I'm not a philosopher, but like, I can't get behind substance dualism. The idea that I am, what I actually am is some combo of body and soul. I don't, I just don't think it adds up, uh, not least because what we would normally ascribe to soul really does seem to sort of grow over time. It doesn't seem mm. to be indivisible. Now, I want to be clear. I do think that human value is indivisible and infinite and is the exact same between all people, no matter how old they are or how good they are, how much cognitive, you know, whatever. I don't think you need an immaterial soul to ground an ethic of universal human value. I think you can do that other ways, but it's, it's messy. It's messy. But, um, so you say like, I don't want to explain it away by explaining it physically. And I just, I would question whether a physical explanation, which of course we cannot give anything close to an exhaustive physical explanation currently. But even then, I don't know that that explains it away. Like, Let me use a stupid example. I know that caffeine ups the like ego part of my self and gets me excited about all the ideas I have, right? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. But then I drink caffeine and I work on the podcast and I write questions for my guest or I'm researching who to interview and I'm thinking about stuff. Like I know that the caffeine is you know, having an effect on that work and my enjoyment of that work. Have I explained it away just because like I drank the caffeine on purpose. I am enjoying the work. I actually think I am 
fulfilling my call to ministry by doing that work. But I know that the caffeine is a part of it. And that if I were trying to do this work at 3 p.m. during my afternoon lull, I would be like, oh, right. I'm such a bad podcaster. I can never think of any good idea. You know, I'm aware yeah. of that, but it doesn't reduce it to nothingness, right? No, yeah, not at all. In fact, so caffeine is an example of of some of you know a substance we use as a utility, right? Like we use it as a tool. Uh, very intentionally, we reduce the we we use it for a very specific effect, expecting an outcome. So we expect like a certain amount of caffeine should have a certain amount of effect on us. And no, it's not you know because our bodies are always different at different times of the day and stuff. So it's but never more or less accurate. perfect, yeah. But more or less accurate, ac- accurate, accurate. Um, <laughs> but what I'm talking about. Are are these moments that are not reducible. So caffeine actually is reducible to the amount of intake. So let's say I can give you a drug that gives you the exact same experience as when your son was born. Does that take away anything from that experience? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is an interesting, this is uh, one of those kind of deep philosophical questions that the, the philosophers argue over, right? Like if you could... If you could induce the exact same experience and all the same sensory inputs and all of that stuff, you know, perfect VR or whatever, well, it would still be lacking context is, is my sort of cheap answer out of it. So uh, our context for my son being born was uh, a history of early miscarriages, fertility mm. treatment, years of expectation, finally, a, a, you know, fertility treatment working a pregnancy sticking and you know you can have you can take drugs that will give you the same dump of neurotransmitters that I felt when I uh was th- when I saw my son for the first time I've never taken right. DMT or MDMA but my understanding is that they will they will do something analogous anyway in a reliable yeah. chemically altered kind of a way but they wouldn't have the same context. So I have felt great joy on drugs mm-hmm. before, on substances before, but I recognize it's always fun. It's enjoyable when that happens, but it's not right. the same as when I did it when I was praying because I know that it's been induced in some way, right? To maybe to wrap this up with caffeine, okay, fine. I know what caffeine's going to do. But say you're yeah. preaching on Sunday and you you drink some caffeine before the sermon and you get into that locked in moment that Schleiermacher talks about, the grandfather of liberal theology, when you're yeah. in the pulpit and you're totally identified with passing God's love to your congregation. You are not being egotistical, you're whatever, but the excitement of the caffeine contributes to the moment. I sometimes experience this in interviews where I late in an interview – I've been going and the caffeine is still in there and I reach this kind of like Zen flow state or whatever. That's yeah. not reducible to the caffeine. It's a part of it, but it's something more also. It's like a, it is a transcendent experience. I guess I just, I resist. Is it, it is. Or I isn't mean, that, isn't that more chemicals in your brain though? I mean, like, I don't know what chemicals, like not a, adre- maybe adrenaline. I don't know. I, what I mean is like, I don't think we can say that transcendence only happens when there are no chemical preconditions for an experience or something like that. I don't even think that that's logically coherent. 
So what I'm saying is that if we can reduce, if if we can reduce experiences to a chemical explanation, so that 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 is all that it is, then that is not. That is not transcendence. Then in, in that case, there are no transcendent experiences because I never experience anything that there's not a electrochemical correlate happening in my brain. Th- there's none. I don't, I mean, now maybe yeah. we disagree on this. So I don't believe yeah. in miracles that violate the laws of physics. I think there are other ways of defining miracles and there are miracles of love and cooperation. There are maybe even miracles that appear to defy the law of physics, but don't. Right. Right. So there can be sort of unlikely quantum events. But I don't believe that. And this is more of a problem of evil thing for me. And there just doesn't really seem to be any of these type of miracles that I don't believe that God violates the laws of physics. Now, maybe what you're saying is that true transcendent religious experiences are violations of the laws of physics. And there is something immaterial going on in my conscious experience that does not have a correlated brain state. So maybe we disagree on that. I don't think that that happens. Yeah. I mean, correlated. Yeah. So if you had the right scanning equipment, you could identify it. Maybe we'll, we probably never will. The brain is the most complicated thing in the universe. But, uh, you know, theoretically you could. It is happening in my brain as it is happening yes. in my conscious experience. Yeah. So you would always, you would see something. So I got yeah, no question that you would see something. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that as you account for it materially, there would always be a remainder. There would always be a leftover. Yeah. And that remainder is part of that ontological reality, that it's not just a thing that's materially happening in my head. It is happening because, as you said, we are bodily. We are inescapably bodily. So it is doing that, but it also can't be merely explained by the material. Um, that's what that's what I would say is, I, I think is that, the difference. Yeah, I agree it can't be explained by it. I wonder if – let me see if this helps. The way that I would – I don't think there's a remainder in the sense of like a non-physical – substance or whatever in terms of a substance dualism. But I would say that the religious question, really the theist question is Hmm. whether there is meaning to these events, Mm -hmm. whether there is meaning beyond the phenomenological experience of them or just the fact that they happened. And I tend to think of atheism as it happened. All you can do is describe what happens You can't really say if it's good or bad. I mean, you could say if you prefer it or not. And then a theist has the option of saying, no, in addition to what happened, there can be a value judgment, good, bad, Mm -hmm. what uh, God's desires, God's kingdom or not, or to some degree in, in some degree in some aspect. And as a theist, I say, no, all these things have meaning. The meaning is something like in the mind of God. I don't know if you can really even get much further than that. I don't really know what what language you would use to describe how the mind Mm -hmm. of God. I mean, I'm sure there are people who have done it and and maybe more successful than me. Yeah. So it has a reality outside of the strictly materialist explanation. Yes. So someone does an evil act. Somebody, Somebody has sex with another person who is entirely unconscious in a way that will leave no physical, let's just say they're not dreaming. 
do it however you want. They will never know. I don't want to do that. That it was hap- that it happened to them. Uh, right. It's still wrong, and not just because it has yeah. a deleterious effect on the rapist. It's just also right. wrong, and yeah. it's wrong in the mind of God in some sense. And right. and that is connected to there being value in the universe, uh, and that yes. is anchored in some sense in the divine in whatever the purpose of this whole thing is these billions of galaxies whatever it is is it purposeful or not is it meaningful or not but i think you can get that yeah. as a traditional or progressive christian so i'm a progressive christian and i affirm that and maybe there are some maybe there's some problems with that and maybe some of my progressive friends will email me i don't know but <laughs> you know i i think you can get there just fine Certainly, yeah. I know Trip Fuller of Home Improved Christianity affirms a very, very meaningful universe, and he is very progressive theologically and just preaches, just preaches the good news left and right. Good. Yeah, so the, there is meaning in the universe, and it's not meaning that we uh, entirely project. So there's always some kind of projection, but it's not—it It's not. Yeah. It, it is, you know, you're describing it in the mind of God. There is some reality that is uh, outside of us, so that— and I think that the example you give, yeah, uh, because we are obsessed with uh, uh, harm, right? So measurable harm when we talk about evil. Is it measurably harming anyone? And uh, we tend as a society to agree on evil when there's some measurable harm. And when there's not measurable harm, it's a little iffy. It, it feels, you know, like, you know, uh, a taboo or something. Yeah. But what you're pointing out is, well, no, if, if there is meaning in the universe, if there is a creator God and he does give and imbue the world with meaning and values, then this hypothetical uh, evil in a vacuum, which does not have any measurable harm to anyone, even the perpetrator, would still be evil in the eyes of God and and in, in whose eyes it really matters the most. Yeah. And I, you know, philosophers listening, grant me a little retroactive grace on how I laid that. I'm sure I did it kind of sloppily in terms of my examples and all that. But I, you know, I think that there are various ways of thinking about how it has meaning, but it's anchored in, in some sense in God's will, you know, uh, and you can, I'm sure you can work that up multiple ways. Let me, let me try another one of these possible issues to see if I yeah. can get on something. Christianity has explanatory power about the world and gives us ways to endure. Are you anticipating mm. a traditional slash versus progressive cleavage on that? issue or would that not necessarily be a problem? No, I think, I mean, I'm thinking about my progressive friends and they see Christianity as, as having explanatory power as, as explaining, as explaining things. I mean, so one difference would be that there's a a little more uh, wiggle room with progressives because when there doesn't seem to be explanatory power, it could be that Christianity needs to be, or some aspects needs to be revised. Right. Um, so maybe it's that maybe it's that actually we didn't understand this doctrine rightly, and so we go back and and we look and and through progressive revelation now we discover what what really the explanatory power is. But still, experientially, when I hear my progressive friends talking, they use Christianity to explain the world, and they certainly use it to uh, to endure. No, so I don't think did I I don't think I mentioned I was explaining grace when I said yes, that, you were. I'm just I'm yeah. fishing. Yeah. I'm fishing yeah, from no, your fishing list of, fine. of things that you love and are important to you about Christianity yeah. to see. Well, we've got a, we have about ten minutes left. I can do another one of these. Uh, I'll tell you what I was going to go for, which is 
situating you in the world and giving you and and informing your obligations toward your neighbor, towards yeah. love, justice, and, and and real action in the world. So you could yeah. do that, or you got ten minutes to talk about any other issues with progressive Christianity that have come up for you as we've talked. We we, we can use this however you want. Yeah, I mean, I think I I guess it would be interesting to we don't need to do this, but I think it would be interesting to continue to explore. I don't want to do this actually because we just spent twenty <laughs> minutes doing it. But 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 that that distinction because it does seem to me that a lot hinges on uh, upon what we're thinking about when we're talking about reality, mm-hmm. right? So 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 what is uh, what is the ontological effect of atonement? Uh, what is the ontological uh, reality of beauty, of truth, of evil, and what does that mean? Yeah. Um, to God and to us, it seems like that's a pretty. It seems like that's one of the 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 uh, you know the the keys here. Yeah. So that's so that's interesting. I guess is all I'm saying. That's like a. It's a fabulously complex question that I'm sure has all kinds of consequences. Let me let me ask it this way. Ask it. If someone said, "All my kids are becoming progressive Christians," what is your number one worry about? the type of faith life that they will lead or regular life that they will lead, as opposed to if that person said, my kids want to get baptized in the PCA or whatever other, you know, denomination, like what is worrisome about that? Mm, mm, mm. That's interesting. Frankly, I have some worries. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They're more like my worries are more, Sociopolitical worries that like right. <laughs> that what that basically means today is like they will be in a blue state bubble and that will lead them to all the kind of problems that my liberal friends and I tend to have with not understanding people unlike us and discounting the moral and religious lives of conservatives. You know, I, I would have worries, but they, but my worries wouldn't be theological worries is one way of yeah. saying it. I'd be like, OK, cool. I'm on board theologically. Now my worry is that they will think that political activism is the Christian life and that that's an equal sign. And I would want to push back on that. But, you know, but that's not a theological – I guess that is a theological worry insofar as it's subsuming theology into politics. So I would be concerned with with the progressive aspects of it, right? So the question of uh, what are they seeing as revised and how, mm-hmm. and um, especially when uh, it has to do with the conception of the of the of the human person and our obligations to each other, and our our sense of belonging and createdness. Let's talk about, so obligations yeah. has come up twice now. So you mentioned yeah. that in the thing that you loved, and now here it is again, my obligations here towards my again. neighbor. Flesh that out a little bit. What What are you thinking about there? Yeah, so I, no, I'm not saying, this is not all progressive, but I am saying yeah. that there is a way of doing progressive Christianity that rests heavily upon uh, individual freedoms, Upon the liberty of self-definition, mm-hmm. upon the liberty of self-creation, upon the liberty of being autonomous from uh, church, from authority figures, yeah. from the text, from tradition. Maximal autonomy and individuality, something like that. 
Right. And so that, which I just, can I plug my book? Yeah. Uh, you are not your own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World, which is all about this. Okay, uh, great. That's not why I was going to talk about this. Yeah. But part of my concern is that this is, I think, actually, it's it's deep in the in conservative churches as well. It doesn't take exactly the same form, but I think it's actually just a very Western uh, thing uh, that we have a way of seeing ourselves in the world. And this is what I was getting at when I was talking about belonging and, and being situated, conceiving of the human person as essentially alone, essentially isolated and self-perpetuating, self-creating, self-defining, mm-hmm. self-fulfilling. That worries me a great deal because I think at that point, what can happen is, uh, first of all, I would be very worried about their experience of life because I think that when you believe that you are fundamentally your own and you're self-defining in these ways, this radical autonomy, it will kill you. Like it's just exhausting. It is depressing. It is exhausting. It is overwhelming. It is, uh, there's burnout. It's just, it's not good for your, for your soul. So I think there is, there's that like per, so you're asking, what if my kid said this? That's one of the things as a parent I would be worried about. What What is going to happen to you? Because I'm worried about the treadmill. And whether it's the consumerist treadmill of self-creation or a you know political justice treadmill or a progressive Christian treadmill, like whatever there is that sense of self-creation, that is, that's, that's scary. But what can go along with that too is that you feel your relationships are all tentative or as this uh, philosopher who I like named Zygmunt Bauman, who I like because his name is Zygmunt Bauman, uh, uh, he calls until further notice. He says a lot of contemporary relationships are are always uh, until further notice. So whether it's marriage or children and parents or friendships yeah. or or work, right? Like when we, when we view all of those things instrumentally as tools, to be manipulated for our self-creation, you know, lots of problems happen. And so I would, yeah, I would be worried about that, that sense of, of, of obligation. That's great. That, that helps me a lot. I share a lot of that concern. The way that I have been thinking of it is thinking of it in terms of a wisdom tradition that basically like what wisdom traditions do is very similar to what science does now but with some slight differences, but it's trial and error over time. It's not like science has added the empirical bit, which is what makes it so precise, uh, what makes it replicable. And, you know, to the extent that you can get more like a hard science, you can be increasingly confident in your findings, right? Over and Mm -hmm. against something like the moral teachings of Buddhism or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. But there is a real value in that trial and error over time. And if Mm -hmm. you separate yourself from that and try and go it alone, basically this sort of maximal Western autonomy, autonomy, individualized life where you are self-generating everything, just just what are the chances that you're going to do it better than someone who just is a Baptist? Like Mm -hmm. they, you know, or someone who's a Catholic, they just have such a better chance of living Mm -hmm. a thriving life because they're going to get some things wrong. For sure, the Catholic Church is wrong about some number of things. But if you mm-hmm. start from scratch, <laughs> how, you know what I mean? What? How, yeah. how could you possibly get more things right than the Catholic Church? Now, nobody starts truly from scratch, of course. They're right. pulling from whatever. But what are you pulling from? Are you pulling from like, you know, like this is where cognitive distortions and heuristics come into play. You're going to probably pull from stuff that makes you feel good because yeah. – 
that's what the algorithm will like. That's what you'll click on. And then the algorithm will send you more of that. Like social yeah. media algorithms are not good character formation tools. They are consumer what? mechanisms, as you know. Uh, uh. You know, so I, I, I wrote this tweet the other day that I think is like a, it's the beginnings of a spiritual rule of thumb. Uh, and it's got some problems, not least definitionally, but it's like the rule of thumb is it's best to be number one, planted within a tradition and number two, pushing that tradition to grow and change that all things equal. That's the ideal combo in my mind, because if you don't have, if you're not planted in the tradition, then you lose access to centuries of trial and error wisdom. If you are not pushing it, then you risk becoming calcified, bigoted, pharisaical in the Jesus sense. Mm -hmm. And now we could disagree and you and I would have slightly different areas of where we're pushing for our traditions to grow and change. Right. But this would be true right. of both of us yeah, uh, in, absolutely. in its own way. And the, the last thing I want to say about this, and then I'll, I'll give you a chance to respond before we wrap up, is a last thing you mentioned that ties into this is these lasting commitments, commitments for lifelong marriage, commitments for, um, you know, whatever it is that's not until further notice. Mm. And one of the, one of the dangers of polarization, sociopolitical polarization, which then is downstream or religion is downstream of that. So now, you know, the gay affirming urban church has basically no Republicans in it. And mm. the, uh, ex ex burb Bible church has no Democrats in it. And yeah. the problem you get there is from my side of the aisle, we are lacking. It's not good to have no conservative personalities in your community because they are going to be better at those long commitments. And the mm -hmm. liberals are going to be better at making sure that those long commitments are healthy. They're not like they won't. They'll be more likely to go to therapy and work on their crap, <laughs> right? And more likely to divorce, both. So you uh -huh. you kind of like, ideally you want some sort of mixture because we are so easily self-deceived, tribe deceived, deceived by the algorithms, deceived by our own cognitive biases and heuristics. You really want a mix. And so my worries with progressive Christianity are basically if it becomes completely sociopolitical. And you don't yeah. have a mix. And then what are you missing out on in terms of wisdom that might guide your life and make it more flourishing? I'm not worried about how God sees you. We That's where we have, we do have a difference in terms of our theological worries, but we have a shared sociological, psychological, you know, mm -hmm. worry. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good word. I mean, the only thing I would say is that, so, and this is a, a difficult tension that, I, I don't want to slip into talking about seeking a balance as if we're trying to fine tune communities. Like we sure. need just like, we need 15 liberal. Yeah. You don't want to 25 conservatives. Not tokenism, you know what I mean? but just like, it's not good that there is, that they're all one thing. That's not good for discipleship. It's probably the case that if we, okay, so, so neighborhoods are often homogeneous, but right. they're, if you think big enough, they're not always, I mean, I know my neighborhood's not right. So, I do wonder if, you know, if we were more intentional about 
thinking uh, locally and being invested in our local communities and the people we have there. I mean, sure, if you're in a blue state, they're primarily going to be blue. If you're red state, they're primarily going to be red, but they're not only. And if you're truly loving your neighbor and participating and having, again, that commitment, because what, what can happen is, uh, you know, you're describing those two church situations and that, that is absolutely what happens, right? But it can happen in the same town, right? Mm-hmm. It can happen in the same stinking town. It does happen in it the same town the same all same over town. America, yep. right? So here are people who are neighbors, they're in community, I would say at least most of these churches are part of the universal church even, but they're not dwelling together, right? Um, we're called to dwell together in, in unity. There's a great psalm about that. But but uh, here, you know, we're not actually dwelling together. We're dwelling apart and very intentionally um, separating. And uh, so the question, one question for me then is, you know, do I have an obligation to this neighbor? Like, do I have commitments to my place in the world? And uh, when we think about ourselves as autonomous, when we think about ourselves as primarily, first of all, and primarily free, then, you know, if I feel like where I'm living in a red state, I, I don't have enough people who, who vibe with me, then it makes sense for me to get up and leave. Um, but what you were saying was, you know, we need to be people who hold on to what is good and we call out what is evil, what is bad, what is incorrect, what is harmful, what is, you know, discriminatory, unjust, right? Unjust. So, yeah, and that requires commitment, right? It requires, stay, requ- requires staying in a place because if you're constantly moving, then you can't be that voice. So I guess, I don't know. That's my thought. Also a good word. It's a, it's a big issue. I don't know how to solve it, but I, I like to at least be able to understand the mechanism that hmm. the religious uh, separation seems to be downstream from the sociopolitical separation. And so we shouldn't, I actually don't even, don't think we should expect our churches to solve that. I, I think we we're making our choices at a sociopolitical level, not at a religious level. Um, and that's where yes. we actually have to work on it. Yep. Alan Noble, thank you so much for your time. You are the author of at least two books, Disruptive Witness and You Are Not Your Own. Are there any others? Uh, not yet. Okay, not yet. Uh, I will have a link to your uh, author page as well as your Twitter. I highly, highly recommend following Whoa. Alan on Don't Twitter. Build it up too much. Uh, thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing the episode. You can join the Patreon, patreon.com slash dancoke, and get access to at least two bonus exclusive episodes per month, plus access to the Facebook group. And we'll see you in two weeks. 